Man, that was good. Huh, love it. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Well, I have, uh, first of all, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened since I've been here, but we have three babies for the first time, I believe. Stephanie, is this the first time? Yeah, yeah. And the Copley's have twins, so we have three new babies with us just this morning. Hallelujah. That's church growth, okay? Very good. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Uh, way on the other end of the spectrum, we have sad news. I know many of you already heard this. Some of you have not. But Michelle Schneider, who's a member here and a Sunday school teacher, passed away suddenly yesterday. And she leaves behind her husband, Bill, two sons, Ian and Aiden. They're both in high school. Good boys, good family. And Michelle, if you knew her, just had this joyous, bubbly type of personality. And I remember when I first came uh, I was visiting all the Sunday school classes, and Bill and Michelle were in one of them, and they were just so encouraging and, and positive, and, and then we were in a small group together for a while, and she's come back to teach Sunday school just recently, and we just need to be praying for them. There's no arrangements have been made as of yet, but to keep Bill and the boys, and Michelle's mother is here now, here in town, and her sisters, and just a, uh, just a bad situation. So in light of this, I, I came up here to the office tonight, last night, and I wondered if I should change the sermon today or if I should do this text, and I got to thinking, you know, from Michelle's perspective, if she were able to speak today, I think she'd say exactly some of these words, and I think you'll agree as we read this text. The original emphasis of this text is an attitude toward money, and we'll still talk about that, but there's so much more uh, behind it and to this than, than the finances. So on your outline, James 4, 13 through 16 is about is to the merchant class of that day, and their goal was to make money. And here's what James says to them. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I use this text in funerals quite often, and the message is very clear. We don't know. And every so often, we get a reminder, like we did yesterday, that life is uncertain. I mean, Michelle was probably in her 40s, I'm guessing, you know. But even if we live to be an old age, life is still a mist. We're here a little while, and then it vanishes. Now, these traveling businessmen rarely became exceedingly rich, these, this merchant class, but they were much better off than the poorer classes. And the purpose today is not going to be, you know, making us all feel guilty for making money or whatever, because there were successful, wealthy men and women in the Bible, and God used them. And there's well-off people today who are humble, and they love Jesus, and they're generous, and they're not, and they're not pretentious. But James is warning us and teaching us about some things. Paul in 1 Timothy has the same basic message. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, it's just assumed today, I mean, how many of you want to get rich? Actually, I... I kind of, it sounds appealing to me, you know, I, and I kind of, we assume everybody wants to have more than they have. Uh, and isn't ambition a good thing? Yeah, and the Bible would agree with that. But James says it's an attitude that today or tomorrow we'll go into this city, we'll carry on business, we'll make money. It's an attitude that says the sun's going to come up tomorrow 
just as it always has. I will get up tomorrow, just as I did today, and we, will, we live as if we're going to live forever. We go to work, we come home and live our lives, and there's no preparation for the future and no thought about anything beyond the immediate. And we just focus on this life only. That's what James is getting at. Uh, you know, some people are really prepared for retirement, but they're not prepared for eternity. And I think Michelle Schneider would echo these words, and she would say them in love and concern. So James is teaching that Ambition for money can lead to a limited view of life. Now, again, ambition is a good thing. In fact, I would contend that Christians should be the most ambitious people in the world. Where we get it wrong is we're not ambitious enough, or we're ambitious for lesser things, and we settle. I would contend that the most ambitious person on earth was uh, Jesus Christ himself. He was very ambitious. He had three years to accomplish his mission, and he came to heal the sick and preach salvation, cast out demons, introduce a whole new society and a whole new way of thinking, raise the dead, take up the cross, save the world. And then uh, before he leaves, he tells us, you and I, to go into all the world telling everyone about the good news. That sounds pretty ambitious to me. And that should be our ambition. Paul, in the letter to Rome, writes, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, to spread the news to those who've never heard of Christ. So every one of us should have an ambition that's higher than just making money or living for this life. There are groups of people that you know of that they need the gospel. That should be your ambition, to share with them. Uh, there are groups of people in the world today that do not have the Bible in their language. We've made great progress over the last several decades, but there's still so much more to do. And the biggest danger of wealth is we set our ambitions too low, and we become this world-oriented, and we get messed up values, and it ties us to this world and blinds us to the important things of life. Jesus said life is more than food, folks. It's more than clothing. It's more than these material things. So these businessmen had an attitude that carrying on business, making money is the most important thing in life, and James would say, your ambition's too low. If that's what your life is about, that's a very limited view. Second danger is if you notice all the eyes in this text, I, I will do such and such, I will carry on business, I will go to this town, whatever town, I am in control of my own destiny, self-confidence drips from these statements, it's self-sufficiency. The more wealth you get, the more you have, the more you're going to depend on yourself. And James says this self-confidence is boasting and it's foolish. He says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Any of you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Bill, last night, I was talking to him. He said, you know, 10 o'clock this morning, we won't even be having this conversation. Things change. And James says and said, you ought to have an attitude that says, if it is the Lord's will, God is in control and not any of us. And making plans, doing business is not evil. Ambition can be good, but the problem is when our planning does not acknowledge who is ultimately in control of everything. How many of you bought a house in your lifetime? Raise your hand. Man, a whole bunch of you. How many of you bought a house in your lifetime? Raise your hand. Very good. How many of you ever changed jobs in your lifetime? Okay. How many of you ever married or planned to get married? I want to see, see this. How many of you had children or planned to have children? Yeah, a whole bunch of you. Okay. How many of you plan to retire? Yep, okay. Now, one more question. Do not raise your hands on this one. Do not raise, okay. When you bought a house or when you bought a car or changed jobs or got married or had kids or whatever, who decided that? Who made that decision? Again, don't answer. Don't raise your hand or whatever. Okay, you'll be wrong. Okay. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. We talk about God being the Lord of my life. What's that mean? 
Is it just words? Or is he Lord of my life? Which means every aspect of my life. It seems to me, Lord of my life assumes that he dictates my decisions and I obey. What does he want? That's the question I ask. What would he want me to do? What kind of house would he want me to live in? What kind of car would he want me to... You know, God, is this, is this purchase or whatever decision I'm going to make, is it going to impact your kingdom in a positive way? Is it going to impact my witness for you? See, that's what James is talking about, partly anyway. Recognize who is ultimately in control and are my decisions made with him at the core of my being. Now, I had an organizational chart last week and uh, me... And everybody else is under me. Life is about me. And it creates conflict. James talked about the frustration, anger. It inhibits prayer. It's really hard to overcome because it seems to be the natural bent of all of us fallen humans. Uh, but here's the God-intended organizational chart. God is above all and then the rest of us. That is the reality. He is in control whether we recognize it or not. Me is not in control. And only if it is his will will I do such and such. Only if it is his will will I wake up tomorrow morning. And I have this constant attitude of submission and humility. That's what James says, living under his providential care. So this first section is to those who make money, they're ambitious. James says, don't set your ambition so low. Life is more than food and clothing and retirement and cars and houses. Don't settle. Then in the next section, he speaks to the landowner class, and these are those who have money, very wealthy farmers. Landowners were among the wealthiest people in the Roman Empire. Now, back then, of course, farming is a whole lot different than now. They didn't have tractors and combines. They had slaves and workers who worked for almost nothing. And a wealthy landowner was, by definition, an exploiter of the poor. And this section is probably one of the most harsh sections, one of the harshest sections in all of Scripture. Now, listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves on the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. James is not exactly buttering up the rich people in his church. Some churches won't even preach that text. Too offensive. So the first group are those who are ambitious making money. The second group already has it. And James says having money can lead to hoarding. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Now most Christians know, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you kind of know this, that when a church starts accumulating a lot of finances, it's usually bad, bad news. And one danger of churches when they inherit a lot, if they face the danger of being more concerned about finances than about people. And it almost always causes conflict. So when churches hoard it, it is unhealthy. And most people, they know that. I would ask, why do we think our individual lives are immune to the same principle? If the church hoards it, it's unhealthy. But if I hoard it, it's okay. Because I can handle it. Well, that sounds an awfully lot like pride. And James says, your gold and silver are corroded. Do silver and gold corrode? No, they don't. So, so what's he talking about? I think he's talking about it's corroding your spirit. 
And we've seen this over and over. We've seen Christians in church who love money more than God and it destroys them spiritually. There's no energy for God. It saps the vitality out of them. And the attitude of a healthy church is material blessings that God gives are going to flow through us. We are a conduit of blessing and God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others and reach our community and support missionaries and teach children and youth and do benevolent care and evangelism. We are not to be a dam to stop the blessing you know, right here. So when you give to this church, you would assume, I think you would assume, that we're going to use it to further the kingdom and we're not going to hoard it. We dare not hoard it. And the attitude of healthy Christians, I think, is the same. Blessings flow through me to become a channel of blessing to others. Now, the Bible says we are to save. Okay? So we all need to save. But our first priority is not saving. Our first priority is blessing others. So I can't give you any formulas. Well, how much should I save? And how much I have for retirement? I can't do that. But just let James speak to you. Let him be a mirror. Uh, His word be a mirror to you. And just... Examine yourself, where you're at with this. Another danger is the refusal to help others. These wealthy landowners were not paying their hired laborers a decent wage, and James says God has already heard their cry. Now, we're in a different economy, different culture, and none of you have slaves that I know of, but the principle is very obvious. When we hoard, we'll neglect and deny others. I read this recently, and I'm always amazed at some of the research that comes out. I think some of it's true, and I think this one is too. And uh, the research found that the simple presence of money in a room shapes people's behavior. When money, and I don't know how they did this, you know, but when money, even monopoly money, even if it's fake money, is in the environment, got a $1 bill here, it starts changing people, changing thinking and attitude. It says people tend to start wanting to achieve goals on their own, but they're not as socially, uh, they don't mind being socially excluded. You know, they're not as much concerned about other people. They see social inequalities acceptable because of this. People who are aware of this are really good at pursuing goals, aware of this money, but they are not interpersonally kind or warm. They're kind of standoffish, not interested in being friends with anyone. So, so what you get when this is present is people who are highly motivated but not very socially sensitive. Now, in America, we value independence, ambition, self-sufficiency. But we are also, anyone comes from another culture, visits us, they say we are socially impoverished, impoverished in relationships, I think because of this. This stuff is powerful. And James is doing a favor for us. He is exposing this. John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus to prepare people for Jesus' coming. And he preached repentance. He baptized people. He told them to turn to God. And he also said to bear the fruit of repentance. And when people ask John, well, what do you mean, bear the fruit of repentance? What is this fruit of repentance? Here's how he answered it in Luke 3. Number one, share your clothes with the poor. Number two, share your food with the poor. Number three, he told tax collectors to not pocket their extra, extra money. Number four, he told the soldiers not to extort money. Number five, he told the soldiers not to accuse falsely probably with the goal of confiscating goods uh, by accusing someone and saying they, they, they were stolen. And then number six, he said, be content with your wages. That's all in Luke 3. No one asked John about money or possessions. They just asked him, what does it mean to bear fruit of, of transformation? What does it mean to show genuine 
readiness for Jesus and change of my life. And he gave these six answers, and at least five, probably all six, have to do with material things. John could not talk about spiritual change without addressing how people handle money and possessions. Now, statistically, half the people sitting here today give nothing. I, I can't help but believe John would say, you have not borne the, born the fruit of transformation or of repentance. So how can we change? And, and this is hard, I know, in this world we live in. How can I make God's priorities mine? How, how can I change my attitude so it's him first and not me first? And... Um, Part, partly in the area of finances, but in every area of our lives. So James gives us some help. Number one, recognize the uncertainty of life. James says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So if you've got all that money you know, in your portfolio, where's it going to be tomorrow? And if you're building your life on that portfolio, you're building on sand and it's pride. There's just a lot of uncertainty in life. That business that looks so good today, any guarantees for tomorrow? That stock you've invested, is it your health? Your family, nothing is certain. I got to think about this this past week. Who are the wisest people in our culture when it comes to this topic? And I came back with this. It may or may not be right. But in my opinion, the people who are the wisest when it comes to this issue have two things. Number one, they've made the Bible their guide. They're going to do it God's way, handling finances, stuff like that. And number two, they've been through the Depression. My mom, 95 years old, is better with finances than most anyone I know. If you want to get your financial life in order, follow the advice of a 90-year-old who is committed to Christ. They get it. There is no certain in life. They know. They've lived it. They've been there. And we are not wise if we rely on anything other than the one eternal constant universe. There is only one security. And then the second truth that will help is recognize God's sovereignty. He is in control. Um, when you're out in nature, and you know, a lot of you have been on vacation this, this summer and everything, and you'll see the redwoods or the ocean or the mountains or the Grand Canyon or something like that, when you see that, you just can't help but to be, oh, wow, you know, awestruck by it. And you get reminded also of who this God is, the, the grander this God, but also you're reminded of your own smallness. And research shows that when experience, humans experience awe and wonder, they become less individualistic, less self-focused, less materialistic, and more concerned about those around them. Interesting. In marveling at something greater than ourselves, like we do every Sunday morning, we become more able to connect with others. Awe helps us worry less about ourselves by turning ourselves first toward God. Every Sunday we recognize God's sovereignty, and it's not a shock that churchgoers are the most generous people in our nation today. They experience awe every Sunday. But sometimes you'll be in God's amazing world and you'll be at the base of the Redwoods and you'll see this eight-year-old over here on his iPad. And he misses the majesty, misses it all. And sometimes I think there's a danger of we missing this majesty that's right in front of us. But the more we recognize this God and who he is and what he's done, the more you will get life right. And then a third truth is the certainty of judgment. James says, weep and wail, judgment is coming, your hoarding is going to testify against you, there is going to be a final accounting. There is a board game that you start with a little car as you go around this board, and it has one peg in it, and that peg is you. Not pig, peg, okay, P-E-G. 
and you move through the board and you start by getting a career with a teacher, doctor, or lawyer, whatever, you get married and add another peg into your little car, that's your spouse, and you have kids along the way, you put more pegs into your car. Now, with the Copley's, they don't have a big enough car for their pegs, but anyway, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, anyway, and then buy, you buy a house, and you invest, and you get some good breaks and bad breaks you go through life, and then toward the end, very end of the day, there's the, called the day of reckoning. And you cash in your insurance and your investments. You even cash in your children. They're worth some money. <laughs> That's a funny one. But anyway, and then the winner is the one who cashes in the most money. The, the name of the game is life. That's the world's game. And if you're playing that game, you lose. Is that what the day of reckoning is all about? Cashes in the most money? The hinge text of this is 417, right in the middle of it, between these two sections. Jay says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sin. Most of you know all this. I have not said anything today you don't already know. You know we're supposed to be a giving people, a generous people like our God is. You know that everything we have is God's and under his control, but a minority people do it. Instead of becoming a channel of conduit of blessing, we want to damn and hoard and you know that's not right. We all know that. There's a story by Tolstoy in War and Peace, and Napoleon is marching on Moscow, 1812, and within a few days he is going to be there. And the people of Moscow are preparing to get out of town. They're loading up their carts with all their possessions, and carts are at a premium. People are paying large sums to get a cart so they can get out of town. And there's this count who has a mansion and in the courtyard of his mansion, he has 30 carts. And the servants have all of them lashed down with all of his possessions tied to these 30 carts. And up and down Moscow at the same time are wounded soldiers in the streets of Moscow, even in his courtyard. And they're writhing in pain, and they know when Napoleon comes in, he's going to kill some of them. He'll put some of them in camps where they're going to die. And everyone understands that's the rules of war and this is the way it's going to be. And the Count's young daughter sees these soldiers and starts weeping and runs to the father and says, Dad, we have to put the people on the carts. And the father already had some sensitivity about it, and he starts weeping, and he hugs his daughter, and he goes down and tells his servants to take all the things off the cart and put people on them. And then Tolstoy said this, the servants, who one minute were doing what most considered the most natural thing in the world, we're now taking things off and putting people on. There's a lot of clutter in my cart. And it is a nonstop job to sweep things off and put people there. This is an area where I'm still learning, still trying to figure it out. But I'm thankful that my parents taught me some of the basics. Work hard, spend wisely, save regularly, and give generously and realize it's all going to be gone someday, and it may be tomorrow. And parents, this is the time to teach your kids. And young people, this is the time for you getting in the habit of honoring God with your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And I think if Michelle Schneider were here today, she'd agree. Honor God with all your life, and all your possessions, and everything you have, and everything you are. He's first. Let's pray. Lord, 
today we are grieving with the Schneider family, with Bill and Ian and Aiden and for Michelle's mother and her sisters and their friends. We're grieving for her Sunday school class. And today is a reminder of the truth of your word and a reminder that life is uncertain and that you only are in control. You are God. And so teach us through this word. Change us. Convict us through this word. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.